Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Credit ruins everything around me. Cream, save the money, dollar dollar bill, y'all. My name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. And Andrew, I'd just like to say that my other co-host, Martin, would definitely approve of that catchphrase. <laughs> I, I read it, and I mean, <laughs> I, did, I had no idea really what it meant, but cream was in the middle, and I was like, oh, I'm going to make Thomas say this. It's a Wu-Tang huh. reference. Uh, I, Do you I not know that. about that? No, no, I knew, chambers. I, Come on, man. I knew that. You didn't know that. <laughs> uh, but the dude who sent it in, his name is William Paybara. Paybara? But so he shortens it to Will Pay. I met the dude. He's super cool. That's good. And like, that's just such a cool name. Is he from around you or New York or something? I think he used to be. I think he moved. Gotcha. Cool. Well, thanks, Will Pay, for that catchphrase. And guys, if you want to give us your catchphrases, um, we're on Twitter at Money Matters Man, or you can email them to us, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com, where you can also send us any personal finance questions you might have, whether they be about debt or investing, or what beer we're drinking today, which is my question to you, sir. Mm. I did see, I saw one of those like big corks, so I feel like you're drinking a barley uh, wine or something like that. I have, I have a nice Game of Thrones bomber. Winter oh. has come. <clears throat> is, this, that, uh, is that an Oba Gang? Uh, yeah, this one is Bend the Knee. Nice. I might not have gotten to that episode yet. <laughs> have you been watching? Just the first one. Oh, you missed the second one? Okay. Mm. Well, I guess not missed because it's not like you miss it, but mm. I'm ahead of you on Game of Thrones. Damn. What universe is this? What are you drinking? I was dude? always behind you. I'm drinking chai. Mm. I found some like really good dragon ginger chai concentrate. So it's just like a little latte made in the microwave. And then I got water, of course. Zach, do you have a drink? You usually don't ask the guest, but I should. Uh, I am drinking coffee and water. It's a good combo. Pure black oh coffee, God. keeping it strong this morning. Just pure black, like cold brew, or just like black hot coffee. Yeah, just black hot coffee. I can't do it. Cannot do it. It tears the stomach up a little bit, but toughens you up. <laughs> it toughens you up. You know, the best way to get through the workday is to have just a torn up stomach. <laughs> exactly. So right. today, guys, uh, we are talking once again about one of Andrew's favorite topics, possibly one of yours, which is rental properties. Andrew's probably favorite investment strategy at the moment. Would you say it's accurate to say? I think it's pretty accurate. One of your favorite ones? Cool. And we have got Zach Evanish from Roofstock.com. He's the director of client advisory services. And what we want to talk about with Zach today is picking a neighborhood and how exactly do you evaluate the qualities of the neighborhood that you're going to be investing in, especially if it's a neighborhood that you don't really live that near. And Zach, that's actually the first like where I want to dive in because we've talked with some people who are like, I will invest in real estate properties, but only near where I live. And I think like what we've talked about a lot on this podcast is looking for opportunities in markets where you might not live, but there's just better opportunity. So what are the considerations when you're looking and making that choice? Yeah, I think, you know, the major pain point that Roofstock is solving um, that a lot of people can relate to is how do I buy outside of my local market? I think the stat is approximately 70 to 75% of rental property owners own within 30 minutes of where they live, mm-hmm. which is a great strategy, you know, because you can drive by the property, you know, visit it. Um, the downsides to that strategy are one, all your assets are tied up into the same market. 
For instance, I live in San Francisco, you know, obviously an economy that is strongly correlated to tech. I yeah. uh, already own my primary residence, you know, work in tech. So my concern would be I don't want to have all my eggs in one basket. And the fact that I can buy in markets like Indianapolis or Atlanta or Chicago, you know, where there's lower priced homes and diversify out of my local market and for non-tech correlated economies is really attractive. And the way, you know, we're trying to make that easier is by providing neighborhood scores is something that we just released. Um, our CEO, Gary Beasley, was actually recently on CNBC discussing it. And the idea is how do we allow people to get inside insight into a market outside of their local area? And by looking at five key factors, which our data science team has determined to be the most important when looking at a neighborhood, um, people can really get a feel for what is this neighborhood like and what type of return is that neighborhood offer and do the two match up. For instance, a neighborhood that has, and we'll go into this, a two star, what type of return does that offer? And does that match up with my overall portfolio strategy? I mean, doesn't everyone want like five stars? I, I remember in like kindergarten, I wanted five stars. <laughs> no question they do. The question is, are you okay with accepting a lower return? Yeah, it's generally. What I was you know, generally a one or two is going to offer a higher yield, a gross yield and higher cash flow. But, you know, there are some downsides to it as well. I think in like a lot of online, like reading, if you're reading about rental properties, people say it's like an, an A neighborhood or a B neighborhood or a C neighborhood. Uh, would you say like five stars roughly correlates to, you know, I know yours is uh, very metric driven, but, you know, five stars is like an A neighborhood, four stars is a B and, and so on? Yeah, I would definitely say a four to five stars in A, between three and four is going to be a B, two to three probably a C, and then below that a D. The, the problem we had with just the pure ABC is it was all anecdotal. Yeah. And it was very opinion based. You know, we're all about data. So how do we actually put data behind this and come up with connecting neighborhood scores to apply to that data? Well, let's talk about the, the data because there's definitely a lot of data, you know, on various aspects of a neighborhood. But I feel like a lot of it is very, um, it's hard to measure. Like, you know, there are school scores, for example, but how tightly does that correlate to rental return? Yeah, I would say when I look at a property, school is the number one thing I look at. If you think Good. about turnover and uh, speed to lease a property and the ability to increase rents, same the way when people looking at a property to buy, where's gonna be a long-term place I can live that's gonna offer the best schools for my kids? And if you look at potentially a downturn, People are going to be, you know, moving away from areas where maybe they don't offer as good as schools and then still have strong demand, you know, where there's really good schools. So to me, that's the number one thing I look at when I'm looking at a neighborhood um, compared to the return it offers. And is that like, do you include universities in that as well? Because I know we, we have one friend of ours who is invested in probably oh, five or six properties at this point. Um, but it's all in a university town. So these are probably people who aren't necessarily going to be looking for schools for their kids, but still may be great tenants anyway. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. We do show, you know, proximity to a major university, but the school scores that are part of the neighborhood score come from greatschools.org, and they put a one through 10 rating on the elementary school, junior high, and high school. Okay. So even when you take into account the differences in demographics between like, you know, younger and older, you still find that a better school rating ends up with an overall better neighborhood viability? Correct. And uh, fast. So long term, if I'm owning this rental property for 15 or 20 years and then I decide to sell it, I can sell it through a company like Roofstock as a rental property. Or maybe my best exit is to sell it on the open market to a owner occupied buyer who's mm-hmm. really going to focus on school scores. And I think that's how you ma- maximize appreciation. Okay. I do remember reading an article a while ago about how, I think it was an article on Zillow about how um, house property prices were higher than near it was to like a Starbucks. Yeah, I heard that too, yeah. So, and I, I've always wondered, is that like, is that like a, an ordering problem? It's like, oh, is, is it actually because the Starbucks are being built near expensive houses or not? I'm wondering, do you guys take into account like proximity to coffee shops, grocery stores, anything like that into your data as well? Not in the, the neighborhood score, but it is something we've talked about. The same thing is, you know, Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. I think, you know, there's been a kind of a flight to downtowns and people are, you know, using Uber more and being in cars less. And the fact that they can walk to, like you said, a Starbucks or a, a Whole Foods is is big factor. Yeah. You know, like going on that vein, um, and I know you guys include the medium home value uh, in your score, but I guess my question is like, how much does that correlate to it being good neighborhood to rent in? Because from what I've heard, that like people invest in a neighborhoods, you know, really high medium home values. Um, oftentimes, their tenants are just uh, really high touch. Like they'll call them for the stupidest things, like a light bulb is out. Whereas um, maybe like a three-star neighborhood based on your ratings, uh, they, they might do a lot of this themselves and not expect, you know, if a cabinet is scratched that you're going to come and like fix it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. You know, my previous career was at a, a single family REIT. And when we broke down the rent levels, we actually saw the opposite. We saw that the higher rent levels were lower touch. Hmm. Really? You know, so like a higher gross rent or higher pro- or higher like profit? Uh, higher gross rent. So if we broke it down to the homes that had rents above 1600, they were staying longer. And they were Obviously doing less, more themselves. Correct. Yeah. And we started sending out videos on how to re- repair the AC filter and, you know, basic things, which I think helped as well. But yeah, we saw less touch out of that actually. Interesting. And were these like um, expensive properties, were they just generally yo- low yield because, you know, it's so expensive to get into the areas? Like, Yeah, these are people who are ex- accepting a lower yield. You know, we're talking a, a net yield in probably the 4 to, to 5% range. But what they're looking at is as a long-term hold, I'm going to have more consistent cash flow, most more likely going to be able to push the rents more. And, you know, they're looking at that building portfolio that way compared to, you know, just looking purely at cash flow. So one thing that is not immediately obvious to me is 
how is a lower star neighborhood? I mean, obviously it's, it's a riskier buy, but how does that translate to higher profits? If you look across, you know, the spectrum of rental properties, say we look at a, a spectrum of homes priced between 50 and 250,000, there's going to be a, a price to rent ratio. Generally right. homes priced between 50 and 80,000, say they rent for 600 to 900, they're going to have a, a price to rent ratio, which a lot of people look at a one or a 2% rule. They're going to fit within that. And then as you start to go up the price spectrum, rents stop to stop matching. So prices are going up a little bit faster than rents. So you'll start to get oh. the properties where it's worth 140, 150, 160 and rents are, you know, at the 0.7 or 0.8% of that. So you can't charge quite as much rent on a more expensive property, essentially. Generally, prices do st stop matching the, the rent to price ratio as you get up in price. Okay. Why is that exactly? Yeah, it's a good question. I think just because the, you know, there's more owner occupied buyers in these neighborhoods. And so they're pushing up the value of those homes, just the demand to buy. If you look at a, okay. a pure rental neighborhood, it's going to have a higher percentage of rental versus owner occupied. Do you find that most of the people that are investing here are just gunning for appreciation or are they just looking for something like safe, steady, uh, you know, like low, low effort? Yeah, I think there's a, a wide variety of spectrum, which is why we're across several different markets that offer some that are very much pure cash flow markets, you know, like a, in Indianapolis, more of the Midwest markets or, you know, markets like Miami or Orlando, which are probably more appreciation focused and buyers are willing to take a little less cash flow. Um, I think it's really just a, a function of what you're looking for. If someone is okay with that home that they buy for 80,000 still being worth 80,000 five years from now, but are just purely looking at the cash flow, that's a great way to go. Vice versa, if you're more focused on appreciation and you know buying something that is gonna be a little more secure, probably a little less work, you, know, you can buy a newer property that's going to be a little more expensive. What do you do? Now, if, uh, I kind of do right in the middle. I'm more of a, a total return guy. I, you know, the the cash flow is not really my focus. It's buying something that is going to be easy to manage, and my tenants are going to stay longer and appreciation. So I try to find properties that I can buy, you know, for below market value. So with some built-in equity. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm more on the, more in the second group. So essentially the strategy there is buy it, have your tenants essentially cover the mortgage for a while and let it appreciate and then sell it. Right. Yeah. And I'm still holding it for a long time. And what I'm seeing is I'm being able to increase my rent. So maybe year one, I'm buying at a 5% net yield, but over five years, I'm able to increase my rents where now I'm at a, a seven or an eight five years okay. later. So I'm a little more patient with the cash flow versus yeah. saying no day one, I need an eight. Gotcha. Now earlier you said that with the homes that are between that 50,000 to 80,000 range, there was like a 1% rent over the price or something like that. How, how is that percentage different than the, you know, the, the yield you get? Yeah. So a lot of investors have a kind of litmus test of is the property 1% of rent. So, so what does that mean? 
So it would be an eight, a home that rents for 800, they would pay 80,000 for, or a home that oh, so rents for 1200. Rent. Correct. So monthly rent is 1% of the purchase price. Correct. And that's gotcha. a, a litmus test for especially a lot of newer investors. Some even push it to a 2% rule, um, which is really hard to find. I think it's a, a great way to initially look through properties, but I think it does push people to focus on lower priced homes, which are fine yeah. just as long as they understand the risks that come with buying forty, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 homes. So why do you say newer investors focus in that area? Do you think it's because they're not taking more aspects into consideration? I do. And I think, you know, it's kind of, you see the shiny object with the 16% gross yield. And I think they also see it as lower risk because, well, if I can put $15,000 down and buy a $70,000 home, that's going to be lower risk because my cash exposure is lower versus putting $30,000 down and buying a $150,000 home. I'm putting twice as much cash into it and it seems riskier, mm-hmm. especially if they're, you know, testing out their first rental property to see if they like it. Yeah. What? But under, in reality, you might be getting into a riskier situation because your low priced home may have factors about it that are just more likely to eat into your profits. Correct. Yeah. Generally, we see higher turnover, higher likelihood of vandalism. The cash flow is a little less consistent and tenants are staying for a shorter amount of time. Gotcha. So when it comes to staying a shorter amount of time, we've talked about vacancy in previous episodes, previous move stock interviews. And Andrew, I can't remember, do we say that essentially like, is it 5% of your monthly rent that you bring in, you should just like kind of suck away for your vacancy? You know, it's kind of like a finger in the air, uh, (laughs) arbitrary number. Um, That's what I'm wondering, yeah. Like does it, with neighborhood data, can you figure out like what is your more a more accurate estimate of that vacancy rate? Zach. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think, you know, it's a little bit harder in single family than multifamily where everything's a rental and there's a lot more data. But I think by speaking with the local property manager, they can get a little more granular for you. I think generally, you know, people are still underwriting at five to seven percent which is really safe. You know, if anything, your property is going to overperform. So I, I still think yeah. that that's the right metric. So if you're, so from five to seven, so if you were just like right there in the middle at 6%, you think uh, that generally speaking, you're overestimating vacancy. Yeah, we, we put 5% in our analysis. You put five, so you put 5% in your analysis no matter the neighborhood rating. Correct, right now we do. But yeah, we're working on making it um, so that, you know, lower neighborhoods, we're going to have some additional um, adjustments that can be made on the expense side and vacancy. Okay. So if that's not part of the considerations for the neighborhood score, like what what specific pieces of data are you guys looking at to get that score? Median home value? Yeah. Great question. Uh, Medium home value, median income, percent employed percent of owner-occupied homes, and then the average school rating. Okay, so really it's just five main pieces of data right now? Exactly right. And so we look at you know census data and um, try to get as granular as we can. I think the neighborhoods are based on 1,000 homes, so it's taking those five data points per 1,000 homes and putting a, a neighborhood rating based on those. 
and just gotcha. to kind of go on the vacancy rate piece. So I was just looking at the math, and uh, as long as you price your stuff uh, well, like not like really aggressive and greedy, uh, it's essentially five percent is like one month missed rent every two years. So it's like pretty high turnover, um, and then uh, like a, I think thirty days is a long vacancy rate if you're you're pushing hard to fill a spot. Yeah, I completely agree. Is as well as if you're being proactive and starting that thirty or sixty days ahead of time. I'll say that as soon, we, we as, soon as the tenant notifies you. Yeah, and I, they, usually they they have to give you some sort of notice, mm-hmm. um, or you at least you know that the agreement's coming to an end. We have yeah. a not so appealing place in Indianapolis, um, and we had like maybe a week vacancy. So I think like, yeah, if you're just on top of it and you kind of know when the time's coming, you could show it while there's another tenant in there, stuff like that. Did your people notify you in time? No, they, they just left and they paid. They just left? They left and they paid a fine. Yeah. And Really? Yeah. Which was great because it cut co- like their fine essentially covered the cost for me to get another tenant in there. Okay. Um, yeah. But still. Is like, that like a, is it like a state law? They have to pay a fine if they don't. But no, you know, it's, it's in our contract. contract. Yeah. It's oh, in our okay. contract. Gotcha. So with those tenants, I mean, they left early. Were they decent overall besides that? Or did you have any problems with them? I mean, they, they paid rent. Um, my, my, pro- my first, this is my first property. It doesn't have a stove or a fridge or pretty much like anything in really? it besides a roof. And yeah, it's BYO, like everything. So Okay. I guess if you took a wall down, that would that would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the one you did not buy through Roofstock, Andrew? Yeah, that's that's my first one that I got through this guy, uh, Bill. And uh, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll say that a cash flow is the hardest, but I've had to talk to the property manager the most. And uh, Laura and I always joke around with people, like like, hey, any chance you know like a good arson? Uh, <laughs> I mean, the property's fine. I don't think we would do that again. It's a bit riskier than um, we would want to do. Why do you have to talk to the property manager so much? Like, is stuff breaking all the time, or are there problems, or uh, just like there's like a, the the toilet wasn't going down once, you know? Then we had to flip the the tenant, you know. There was a late payment here, there, you know, and uh, the um, the people who are applying to this property aren't. Thomas Franks, there. Um, I changed my own light bulbs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, they're they're like they're pretty underemployed. They have their their credit report and like uh, crime history is so many pages long. Like all of them, um, mm. you have to find like the least worst person. So when you get into a situation like this where you're 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 getting into a more risky property like you are, do you guys see there's like a an aggregate level, like just more need for maintenance, less taking care of the property overall, more having to fix it up when turnovers happen, like that kind of thing? Definitely. Yeah, I think okay. it's it's you know, it's buyer beware. And if people are coming in with open eyes and understanding that then it's great. But what we really want people to be aware of is these investments are not all the same. Yeah. The expenses should not be the same on a $50,000 home as they are in a $200,000 home. Right. Not, not the same on a 1950 build as they are in 2010 build. Mm. 
Okay. So as long as they're underwriting them accurately, I think it's fine, but just coming in with eyes wide open. So a lot of that is, you know, us educating buyers correctly. Yeah. So how, how do we tell people or how do people know like, okay, I'm buying a 1950 house in a two star neighborhood. What should I expect on my vacancy rate? What should I expect on my break fix versus 2013, you know, $250,000 house? Cause all I've heard on these podcasts we've done are like single percentage numbers. Like it's 5% for vacancy, 5% for break fix. Yeah. I think overall, when you're just mindset wise, be very conservative when you're underwriting the lower priced home and, you know, be very conservative and then look at the cash flow. And if it's still, you're still as excited about it. Great. And then if it overperforms, obviously you're going to come out ahead. General numbers, I would underwrite expenses closer to 50% for the lower priced homes. And for a, a higher end home, you'll probably be in the mid to high 30s. Okay, so when before you buy, because I mean, you're not going to know how well it'll cash flow before you buy. Correct. You kind of take like a 50% ballpark estimate if it's one of those lower end homes or an older home, and then 30 if it's higher end. Be a yeah, rate. I'd say 35 percent for for a newer home okay you know Andrew, what did you use for, in good condition yeah those are uh, actually the have... two numbers that we use we do like uh it's like imagine so i, I and I, there's like a, a few like quote-unquote rules similar to like the one percent rule one of them i guess is like the 50 percent rule and it's like imagine you take your rent you get rid of half of it and then from the second half you deduct like your mortgage, property manager, blah, blah, blah. You know, if you're at least like up a dollar, then you could probably withstand like quite a lot of shit failing. Uh, that's, yeah. It's a, again, I guess it's just like a litmus test of, well, I don't know, how bad things can get and if, and if you're going like, to lose money. Yeah. So you're saying you use both those numbers when evaluating one property? Well, I mean, you could run it. You could run like multiple scenarios and just see like what it would look like in like the like in a vacuum ideal cash flow scenario where you get all your rent back, you know, uh, you know, and then you can consider vacancy rate, capex, and, and kind of uh, go further towards doomsday. So where where do you make the decision? Like, are you only gonna pick a home that still works in doomsday, or are you willing like? your individual investor decision making process. Mm. You're looking at something like, okay, under this 50% expense ratio, it's a no, but under 35, it's a yes. Like, are you going to say yes? Or are you gonna keep looking? So I have I have a good friend that invests exactly like Zach does. Uh, he's all about like the highest IRR, um, appreciation, uh, internal rate of return. It's like an okay. investment banky approach to evaluating uh, like the full return. Right. So it's right. like appreciation, cash flow, blah, 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 you know, like less fixes potentially if you consider that. Um, I personally uh, want to focus on cash flow um, and I just want to in like the 50% rule, like be zero or a dollar. And I think that's if I could find the best home that, uh, but this, that's me personally. Zero or a dollar meaning like even with 50% expenses, you're still making $1 per month at least. So the 50 some rule is like remove half of the money you take in from rent, just throw it in the garbage, and then deduct all of your expenses from the second half. 
and like mortgage, okay. blah, blah, blah. And if you're still at like a dollar, for in, in my eyes, if I could find the best home that qualifies there, that that's something I want to look for. Then you're good to go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're probably going to be sticking more to that 50% rule, even if you're looking at a newer home. Mm. Gotcha. I, I got lucky with my roof stock properties. Uh, I got two in Georgia, and they, they both qualify. And I think one was 2010, and the other is like 2008 uh, mm-hmm. build. So so they're all pretty new. Not going to have to deal with the roof caving in anytime soon. <laughs> I was going to say, at least 20 years until the roof collapses, I'm hoping. And 20 years <laughs> from now, Andrew, can deal with that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Where are yours, Zach? Uh, I own three properties in Atlanta. And then one in Cape Coral, which is southwest Florida. Okay. And then one in Palm Bay, which is just east of Orlando. So three in Atlanta, two in central Florida. So you've got two that are in potential hurricane zones. I'm just going to ask that. Okay. What was your decision for going with that rather than like looking for more in Georgia or Indiana or someplace where there's less of a risk of natural disaster? Yeah, I'm really bullish on Florida. I look at net move-ins and unemployment rates and job creation, and Tampa and Orlando are always at the top of the list. I used to live in Orlando. Yes. Wow. Yeah, if you look at Orlando, especially where you know people age 28 to 38 are moving, mm-hmm. it's been in the top two or three over the last few years. It's got okay. a young tech economy that's just starting to spurt up. Um, so I'm seeing, you know, not just old economy jobs, but and, you know, tourism, but also some young tech moving there as well. Um, in Orlando, they just had a new MLS soccer team. Um, I used to live there for about two years. Okay. So have a familiarity with the area and found two properties that I really liked. Both were priced below market value. Um, and then the Atlanta one, same deal. Um, I bought one in East Lake, which is kind of a new cool area just east of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it was probably a 5% net yield going in. I've already been able to, to raise the rents about 15%. So now it's, you know, much higher return. Nice. And with those Florida ones, so I mean, you've got, you've got a lot of younger people coming in, more jobs, people who can afford the rents if you raise them up. Uh, like what, what's your mental framework for dealing with the possibility of a natural disaster? I think because I, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that comes up a lot and by having lived there and, you know, experienced some, some strong storms, not a full on hurricane, um, maybe I look at it a little bit differently Mm -hmm. and then I just, you know, get really good insurance. Okay. So you've got insurance on the properties and you've obviously been able to raise the rents enough that you can cover that even with a good yield. Correct. Okay. And again, they've, you know, one I bought for 130 uh, less than two years ago. Uh, I had an, actually a real estate agent call me last week saying, you know, I have buyers, and she thought it was probably worth 175 or 180. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I've, I already have forty thousand dollars potentially in appreciation, obviously wow. that's on paper, but that's going to make up for any you know three or four hundred dollars of cash flow per month. Okay. So uh, you're. The the roof stock rating, the star rating, takes in a lot of like um, quantitative things, like median home price and, and stuff like that. Uh, but I think you brought up something really interesting and in how uh, like there were tech jobs moving to these areas. You know, it's like a new cool area. 
um, a friend of mine invested uh, in North Carolina, and I had no idea, but there is like a, a ton of military bases down there. Air Force, Navy, I think it's like the, one of the biggest Navy, if not the biggest Navy base in the world, down by like Charlotte. And, uh, you know, th- there is a ton of people that, that are employed through these things. So how do you uh, rank these non-quantitative factors? Like what things you consider as like your fluff factor, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously right now we're just focused on data and how do we look at every home the same without anything anecdotal. Well, I think to that, get that's fine. that I mean, information, like you. you would have to talk to a, a local property manager. Well, but what do you consider personally? Yeah, I look at, like you said, I look at net move-ins, where people are moving to. I think Dallas and Houston have seen really strong growth because they've become the cool place to live. Denver is a really good example. It's become the cool place to live. (laughs) And the appreciation is mind-blowing in Denver over the last three years. Mm. And you could have bought something in Ben's negative cash flow and you'd be way, way ahead. Nashville is another example. So I think just, you know, looking at overall trends, um, we don't have anything specific on the site yet. It's one of the things we're working on. Um, to kind of give some information of where people are moving. But I think just kind of looking at overall trends of where people are moving, net move-ins, net move-outs. Where do you go for net move-in data? uh, Realtor.com has some some good data. Um, I think they publish every six months of net move-ins and net move-outs. And the most recent one I looked at, you know, a lot of people are moving from, you know, some Rust rust Belt areas, but also some higher-priced real estate markets like a San Francisco or an LA to places like Atlanta and Orlando, you know, in Nashville mm-hmm. where, yeah, they're going to make a little bit less in salary, but they can sure afford a lot more. They're not paying San Francisco prices. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. People talk about how the, I'm in Denver, by the way, people talk about how crazy the prices out here are, but I look at them and I'm like, yes, this is worse than Iowa was, but I look at anything in San Francisco and it looks like a steel cliff here. Exactly right. It's just absolutely crazy. So you get, say I'm, I'm a qualitative investor. Maybe I'm looking at the data as well, but I, I want to start doing these things the way you do. I've got my net moving data. What's my next step? I'm like, all right, Dallas is great, but Dallas is huge. So how do I figure out where to start investing in Dallas? Yeah, I would make calls to local property managers that we have on the site and just ask them, you know, where is there a strong demand? Okay. Where so are you're like looking for neighborhoods and stuff? Yeah, where are things being leased, you know, before they hit the market or leasing really, really quickly or people able to really bump rents? And, you know, that, those are really our partners on the ground to get that really super hyper local market information. What do you mean by being leased before they hit the market? So when you're in a really strong rental market, Denver, a good example, my guess is the property managers in, in Denver have a backlog of people wanting to get into oh, some of the cooler areas. So as soon as yep. those hit the market, they have, you know, 10 potential renters. Gotcha. Uh-huh. So they barely, they don't really have to advertise much, you're saying? Yeah, exactly right. Okay. So looking for high demand areas in cities that are cool with a lot of net move-ins and then augment that information with the data you get from things like your neighborhood rating, you know, factors and things like that. Exactly. Um, What else can you look at? Is there like, 
can you look at crime statistics? Are there, is there a place you can go for things like that? We don't have crime statistics on the site right now. We haven't found a good way to get hyper-local crime data. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked our data scientist team about that exact thing, and they feel that by looking at the five factors we do have, it does encompass that. Just if you look at percent employed, um, median income, medium home value, it kind of already takes that into uh, consideration. So you kind of just have to extrapolate from economic data? Exactly. Okay. You know, it's interesting you bring up crime data. I I look at like Hoboken on the crime maps. It's one of, I guess the the local police department has to expose that data, you know, for it to appear on crime maps, which is not everywhere. And it looks like it's really high crime, but it's just like drunken disorderlies or like noise complaints (laughs) and stuff, you know, but the neighborhood's good. Just people being people in Hoboken. Yeah, but the thing is, like, I would choose, like, people being drunk and stupid, and then the map looks red, versus, like, people being shot, you know, and the map is red. I think it's hard to kind of gauge that with a heat map. So you say crime maps. Are there actually crime maps you can go look at? Like, you go to the government website and find them? For some places, like New York City, I I guess, like, they have to uh, publicly expose the information. Okay, so it's not like a sure thing for every market that it's possible that you may be able to find that data? Right, like I looked where I invested in Georgia and it's not available, right? Mm-hmm. But it's invested where it's, it's available in Indianapolis where I, where I invested. Gotcha. Did you do any sort of like, like forum research, like maybe on like Quora or city data or anything like that to like kind of get a feel for the neighborhoods? I'm just kind of asking people. Because I remember when I was wanting to move to Denver before I did... I did a ton of that, just browsing threads on city data, looking at people talking about what neighborhoods are good, what neighborhoods are bad, things like that. You know, uh, I, I did a little bit, but I, I did um, Google Street View, and I wore, like, my really judgy hat. Oh, and I okay. looked at all the houses, <laughs> I looked at all the cars and the types of businesses that were around there, and I tried to kind of gauge if they were just all shitty clunker cars and, like, you know, check caching places or if there was like more meaningful stuff. And it's like, you know, anecdotal, but yeah, but know. it's no, but that's like, that's actually a good way to get over the whole. I don't live here thing mm. because a lot of people aren't comfortable with not knowing, you know, what it feels like or looks like. And obviously you're not going there and seeing it in real time, but that is a way to do it. I remember somebody, somebody on Reddit the other day mentioned like Gary, Indiana being like a bad place. And I was like, What's in Indiana that could be bad? Because I don't really know my geography that well, apparently. It's pretty close to Chicago. And so I went into Google Street Maps and went down to a random street. And I was like, oh, my God, everything is like all boarded up and the windows are broken everywhere. (laughs) Holy crap. A Google Street View car was lost in that neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a sign. We didn't actually want to map this. We got lost. (laughs) But yeah, that might be an actual good thing to do. Because I feel like you know, using using data to find a rating and use that as the or as part of your decision making process is good. But if I were to make that decision, or if I, you know, if I was actually going to buy something, mm-hmm. I would also want to do a little bit of qualitative research. Yeah, whether it's definitely opinions, yeah, I think talking to property managers. Yeah, definitely. I think you know you use the data to narrow it down, mm-hmm. and then yeah, you got to look at factors. Is this on you know the corner of a busy street, a four lane road? Things like that. And I think the first thing I always do is pull up Google Street Maps. 
Yeah. If it's on the corner of a busy street, like, is that a bad thing for you or a good thing for you or what? I think so. I think long term, it's going to limit your appreciation a little bit. You know, oh, I'd rather so be a bad thing. in a cul-de-sac. Yeah. And it's going to, you know, renters are going to look at it the same way if they have kids. You know, okay. nobody wants to be on a busy four lane road. Obviously, there's a price where it makes sense, but it's something to consider. When you're thinking about median, I guess, how do I phrase this question? When you're thinking about your median income, are you kind of making the assumption that the people that have a higher median income are going to have kids? Like, is, is that why schools are such an important rating factor? I don't know if we're making that assumption. I just look at it as schools are such a strong component in desirability of a neighborhood. Because mm -hmm. I'm thinking long term, my properties are gonna appreciate to an extent where I wanna sell them, not as an investment, because the yield will probably be too thin, but to someone who wants to move in. Mm. And okay. families, there's nothing stronger than, I want my kids to be in a good school district. Gotcha, you okay. You keep talking about like the future when you sell, and obviously there's, there needs to be an exit strategy. Do you have like some number timeline in your head for your properties? Like keep for 20 years, keep for 27 and a half, whatever, and then, you know, sell and buy the place next door? Like what, what's kind of your mindset? I think for a lot of my properties, um, probably gonna be a 15 to 20 year hold. Um, one, I think I'll have kids in the next year or so, and I always love the idea of being able to sell one off when they go to college. Mm. as there's a college fund right there that I put 20% down on 15 years ago, tenant paid my mortgage for 20 years, and now I can sell it and pay for college. Mm. And then also the idea of probably rolling you know, some of these and doing a 1031 exchange into a portfolio of single family homes. But the areas I'm buying in, I'm bullish on long term, mm -hmm. and I feel really good about the appreciation. These are, these are buy and hold properties. Do you ever go into places that have uh, HOAs or, or homeowner associations or do you avoid it like the plague? If they're less than I'd say $20 a month, I'll probably look at it. But anything above that is such a, a yield killer mm. that I, I generally avoid them. I think there's plenty of options without HOAs. Is there a reason to be concerned about, I don't, not like regulating, or I guess, I don't know, can they shut you down if you're trying to rent or make your life a living hell if, you, if you're renting, or are those just overblown? No, I think it's a, it's a consideration. You know, part of our certification process is a review of the HOA and the CCNRs to make sure people are not buying in rent-restricted HOAs or HOAs that limit the leases to six months or longer or whatever it might be. Um, I think the days of, of HOAs going under are probably gone. Um, but I, I definitely under. think, you know, if you look back at the crisis, yeah, I mean, if you look back at the crisis, you know, 2008 to 2010 or so, there were HOAs in some of these neighborhoods that, you know, had to go delinquent. And then, oh, okay. Yeah, which is scary because then you don't have people taking care of the neighborhoods and the lawns and things like that. Um, we haven't seen much of that, but I think the big thing for an investor is if I'm going to buy an HOA, what amenities do they cover? Yeah. And to make sure there's no rent restrictions because the last thing you want is buy a property, 
that tenant moves out and now you can't release it or the CC and our board has to review the lease, things like that. So two questions for you. One, the places that are listed on Roofstock, because actually I've seen some of them that looked really great and I didn't buy because I was like, ah, there must be some homeowner association bullshit that's going to screw me in like a year or two. So to, to clarify, the places that you guys certify don't have anything like the first three people who submit paperwork can rent and everyone else can't. Um, is that like correct? Okay. Yeah. That's part of the certification process is anything that has anything that's going to restrict an investor does not make it through. Would, would the, you find those on Roofstock rack or you just wouldn't find those? Yeah. Those wouldn't even make it onto the rack. Mm. Okay. Because Wait, everybody's coming on our rack. site like to buy investment properties. It okay. is. It's the, the area of Roofstock for non-certified properties. So properties that Maybe need a roof to be replaced or they're vacant or a tenant has late payments. What we've decided to do is really tighten the criteria on the roof stock certification process. And those okay. homes that are certified come through a really strict filter. And then huh. for those properties that we still think are good investments, but don't make it totally through the certification process, go in the rack. And the idea okay. is someone could buy those at a discount. So I'm curious. Okay, Zach, so they basically like they they will probably yield better if I mean higher risk but higher reward, right? Well, you have to exactly factor right. in fixes. Like, so if the roof needs to be replaced, you'd have to factor in the roof fix in your yield. And I will say, Zach, that there's I've gotten a lot of emails on Roofsock Rack and interest in people trying to like, um, I guess understand how they would calculate out. Uh, the the fixes into their yields and if it would make sense, do you think that interest mat like is the interest in rack high or has it been tepid right now? Yeah, I think it's been for our experienced investors who have already bought one or two properties through Roofstock and know us and trust us. Mm. They are starting to look hard at those and making offers. The roof needs to be replaced in two years. That's going to cost me six grand. But if I can buy this for $12,000 below market value, that sure makes a lot of sense. I already know that local market and I have a property manager who can help me. Hmm. But for first time investors, I don't think there's been a lot of interest. You know, they're buying property outside of the local market and it probably makes more sense to, for them to buy a, a fully certified property. You know, that's that's been like the exact conversation that people have said like, well, you know, this is like the estimated value and replacing a roof is only, you know, like a half or, of that or whatever. Uh, does it make sense? And I'm curious what you think about the addition of more capital at the beginning as like a higher risk scenario or do you think it's a, a moot point? Yeah, I think it's a moot point as far as can I get a discount to what that's going to cost me? Then it probably makes sense because I'm adding that roof myself. Now I'm adding a new roof that has a 20 year lifespan instead of buying a property that maybe has a five year lifespan. Mm. If I'm going to own that property for 20 years, it's going to need a roof at some point. If I'm putting it on now, I'm controlling those costs and probably getting a larger discount than what I'm paying for that roof. Hmm. But then you're, are you kind of like throwing away the rest of the useful life of the previous roof though? Well, that would be for a property that needs the roof replaced right now. Oh, okay. Gotcha. 
do you find that most people get a place with like two years left on the roof, you know, buy it, rent it and like wait until it like needs to happen and then they do it or are they just kind of like rolling it into the initial transaction? Yeah, I think they're waiting, trying to get maximum life out of that current roof. Mm. And then when it really needs to be replaced, then spending that those funds to get the roof replaced, but going yeah. in, making sure they have that reserve. Yeah, that makes is, sense is to the me. main part. Can you have a tenant when you get the roof replaced or it has to pretty much be vacant? For a roof, yes, you can replace it with, well, I mean, with the tenant being well, occupied. You can. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can they just like do it in a day? <laughs> I think it's a, a function of, uh, you know, what type of replacement needs to be done and how extensive the repairs are. Okay. They're not like kicking the tenant out for a week or something. No. I mean, that would only be if there's a major, major repair gotcha. that was found, a termite issue or something like that. And we have to literally rare. take the entire roof off and put a new one on there with a crane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is more patchwork, removing layers, adding other layers. Mm. Gotcha. So before you had mentioned uh, the acronym CCR a few times, what what is that? Uh, codes, covenants, and restrictions. That's the the bylaws that the HOA goes by. Ah, got you. I am very glad my last neighborhood did not have HOA. <laughs> <laughs> I've just read all those HOA horror stories about how, like, I don't know, the neighbor who hates you next door gets elected president of it, and then. Mm. That was the last you place that I your lived. Lawn with the scissors or something. Yeah. Del Boca Vista. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Oh, it was the last place you lived. You had a horrible HOA. No, Seinfeld reference. Del Boca Vista is the the HOA where Seinfeld's parents live. Oh, okay. I haven't watched much Seinfeld. Got it. Too much. Yeah, I think the there. benefit to the the HOA could be, you know, that you have the the rules and restrictions in place and some consistency consistency amongst the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, your neighbor can't just totally go off the wall and paint their house a crazy color or if there's cars on the lawn, things like that. that you know, they're going to be restricting some of that stuff. So if you're buying out of the local area, I think there are some advantages. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I've just I've just heard the horror stories about the overly restrictive HOAs or the ones that just badger you mm. all the time. If your lawn gets like half an inch longer than they want or something like that. You think we've covered uh, everything we should for neighborhoods at least? Yeah, I mean, that answered all Good my intro. questions. Do you, do you think that we missed anything, Zach? Anything you wanna like add? No, I think that was the main thing to cover is you know the variance in the neighborhood scores and the risk associated with the, the different stars. You know, how is a two-star neighborhood vary from a five and what are the positives and negatives to each? Cool. Well, we have, I have the, uh, the neighborhood rating page up right here. We can put this in the show notes if people want like a more summarized breakdown of it. You yeah. can actually check. You can click on every star and see exactly what it means for each of these features. Are you guys planning on adding more features in the future? Yeah, this is definitely version one. Well, I will be looking forward to seeing how it evolves. You can add more data. It's always a good thing. And Zach, yeah, definitely more data and get more granular. You know, try to get as granular as you can. Right now, it's covering about a thousand homes, but mm-hmm. how do we get more granular to five hundred home level or two hundred home level, mm. or down to the street? Exactly. <laughs> that's really the goal. How do I mean, we get like as legit, much information right? as you can? Yeah, definitely. Because I've been to neighborhoods where like one street is definitely different than the other ones. 
one that's yeah. like a dirt road or something. So. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And and that's the thing we want our investors to to be avoiding is buying, you know, on the wrong side of that street or buying, you know, two streets over where, you know, they're paying a price compared to the other side. Yeah. So making and these are out of state investors and how do we make sure they're not making that mistake? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, is there a way people can get in contact with you or follow you? Yeah, just Zach, Z-A-C-H, at roofstock.com. Love talking real estate. You know, anybody who has any questions, um, would love to chat. Cool. Are you about to say something, Andrew? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, Zach was the one who convinced me to invest in uh, roofstock. Um, he answered like, I don't know, umpteenth million questions. Uh, I would challenge you to actually email him. <laughs> yes, definitely. I think that was uh, close to a two-hour call. You were kicking the tires as much as you possibly could. And I'm like, yeah. R.I.P. Zach's inbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew is also super into this stuff too. So if you have questions you want to ask us, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com is our email address. And your questions help us come up with new episode topics. So in addition to replies from Andrew... Um, it helps us guide what we talk about on the show. So thanks for your questions. Andrew, is there anything that I should mention before we close out here? Um, I've been too busy tearing down my entire room <laughs> to talk with you. No, no. Everything is, is the same. Listenmymatters.com, you know, all those, all the things. Cool. Well, check out our toolbox over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. You'll find a link to Roofstock over there, plus links to other tools that you can use to improve your finances, your productivity, and even start a business. And if you like this show, uh, leaving a quick rating and review on iTunes is a great way to support it and help us bump up those rankings. It also tells us what we're doing right and wrong, gives us good feedback, and it's good for improving the show long-term. So thank you so much if you do that. Thank you guys for listening as well, and we will see you in next week's episode. Later, guys. Later, man. Thanks, guys. Please tell your friends about this show. <laughs>